source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. You'll find Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Or you can open up to page 260 in the Pew Bible. This morning we're going to be taking up a passage that has worn my heart for some years. I've never had the privilege to teach on it, and so I decided that I wanted to study it and preach it this morning. To give you a little bit of context to where we are in biblical history, uh, Israel longed for a king, they cried out for a king, and God provided them with a king. He provided them with a king that men would desire. He provided them with King Saul. Saul was a foolish king. He did not fear God. He did not uh, follow and obey God's commandments. And he soon found that he had lost the grip that he once had had, the thing that he once longed for on his kingdom. God sought out a new man. He sought out a man after his own heart, King David, a young shepherd boy. And so Saul begins to find out that this, this David, the one that he had called upon to slay Goliath, is now the one whom God is going to put on the throne. And he becomes his arch rival. And time and time again, Saul seeks to do David great harm. He throws spear after spear after spear at him. He sets his army to flee after David to kill him. At one point, David turns around to Saul and he says, What's going on? Why are you so angry? And Saul says, I'm an evil man. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Please forgive me. David turns his back around and here comes Saul once again to kill him all over again. The strangest part of it all is that David's dearest friends dearest friend was Saul's son, a son named Jonathan. It says in the Bible that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. And now, and we see in the scripture that Jonathan and David entered into this amazing covenant where they promised to love one another in a steadfast way forever and to show that same kind of love to their families after them. And we pick up the passage this morning, and what we find is this, that all of Saul's family has died. Even a a lame attempt to establish another son, Ishbosheth, on the throne instead of David, that has failed. Now, David is the man. He is the ultimate ruler. He's at the ultimate peak of his rule. And he asks a question in this passage. Is there someone left from Saul's family? Imagine how you'd feel. If your arch rival just asked, you are the only one left. Asked, is there someone left? And you were that person that was left. I think that's how we feel sometimes when we hear from God. Because we know the shame of our past. We know the suffering that defines our lives. And we're afraid of what might happen when God says, where are you? Come to me. What does the Bible teach us that God says to us this morning? Give attention to God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there still someone, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? 
And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this passage to our hearts this morning. Our great God and King, we thank you that you are the great declarer of truth. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the great lover of our souls. And I pray that we would see that, that our minds would grasp hold of that this morning as we see and we take in this this story, this narrative, this word picture of your love. Lord, do a great thing for us that we might not leave here the way that we've come in, that we might leave knowing Jesus, having met with Jesus, having been transformed by His grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a good friend. He's a friend that's not at all like me. He and I are about as different, I think, as you could come, as they come. And I asked him if I could share a story about his life with you this morning. And he said he would find that quite humorous. And so he said I could use his name. I said I'm going to protect your identity because of the story that you said I could use. He said, however you want to do it. Anyway, uh, one of the things about this, this friend of mine is in the back of his pickup truck, it looks like... Um, it's terrible. It's about the most messy back of a pickup truck that you could ever imagine. There are wet clothes that he's going to take to the laundry one day. Normally they wear out before they ever arrive. There is tons and tons of trash. There's scrap metal. There are loose tools. And at one point I looked under this pile of clothes and I saw this stack of envelopes. I said, what is your mail doing back here? It's getting wet. It's getting soaking wet. What is this? He said, oh... Those are bills. Those are bills from the bill collectors. They're after me. 
So you put them in the back of your pickup truck in a rubber band and you fold them so they can become soaking wet. Yeah. Um, okay. So at one point he got a phone call uh, on, on, his, on his telephone. He answered the phone. He said, hello. And all of a sudden I realized that the, from what he was saying that there was a bill collector on the other end of the phone. And he said, I'm about to jump. My life is terrible. My life is terrible. I'm going to jump. I'm going to do it. I can't live any longer. And so he makes the bill collector uh, transition from bill collecting into negotiating to negotiate him down from the bridge. I've seen him use other tactics. That was one of the cleaner tactics that he's used in order to deflect the, the burden, the debt that he owes to the bill collectors. The thing about this, this man, this friend of mine, is that he realizes something that we need to realize. He realizes the, the immensity of his debt. He knows he can never pay it back. He doesn't even attempt to try. He throws them in the back of his pickup truck. He hangs up on them. He tells them to talk him down from the bridge. He knows he can't pay it back. And the thing that's also amazing about it is that most of us would say this is not good. But I think from a spiritual perspective, maybe it is good. That he understands that the only way out is grace. Of course, you and I know that the bill collectors are never going to say, Oh, no problem. I'm sorry you're having such a bad day. Come down from the bridge. You don't owe us any money anymore. But he understands the only way out is through grace. What I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that that's how we view God. We view God as the great bill collector. We understand, or we should understand, our indebtedness unto Him. When He pops up in our caller ID, we start to sweat, we become nervous, we become anxious. Because we know that He's a holy God, and that He demands perfection. Now, some of you may not know that. Some of you may not fear, as you should, what it means and what it looks like to stand before the King. You see, the King, the, the king of the Bible, the great King of, above all gods, the Lord God the Almighty, is not a King who says, Oh, I'm glad that you are better than most of your friends. I'm glad you're not as bad as other people. No, he says, you must be perfect. My friend understands that bill collectors want him to bring his balance to zero. It has to be perfect. He can't just be a little bit. He can't just get a little bit closer. He has to cancel the whole debt. And when we see God pop up in our spiritual caller ID, we become nervous because we realize that our our lives are not defined by perfection. How many of you have said, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better? How many of us are defined by our habitual sin, where we come to God in that sad cycle and we pray, Lord, forgive me, I'll never do it again. And then we find ourselves right back doing that very same sin all over again. Oh God, I'll never do it again. And then we find ourselves back there doing it all over again. Our lives are defined by shame because we're deeply aware of our guilt. And so our lives are defined and described as lives of people who are simply sufferers. We suffer day in and day out. What would God say if He ever did, and He will one day, what will He say when He calls you to come before Him? What will He say when you bring all of your indebtedness unto Him? What will He say to you? That's the picture that this narrative provides for us this morning. It begs the question... But it also gives us an answer to the question. Here's this man, Mephibosheth. His whole family had done nothing but harm, aside from Jonathan, had done nothing but harm and injustice to David. And in those days, when a new king took the throne, it was, it was like a given in geometry. It was understood. He's going to wipe everybody out. He's going to kill all of the former ruler's family. They're not going to breathe anymore on the face of the land. And now David calls for Mephibosheth. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Imagine how Mephibosheth felt at this moment. 
You see, Mephibosheth was crippled, and he literally didn't have a leg to stand on. But my friends, we're like Mephibosheth. We don't have a leg, leg to stand on as well. We don't have an excuse to bring before God. So how will he respond to us? This is what I want to suggest to you this morning. That God delights to show grace to guilty people like you and me. That's what this whole passage is about. The God of all the earth, the great King above all gods, is the dear lover of our souls. That He delights to show grace to people like you and me who are defined by shame and suffering. There's one word that this whole passage hangs on, and I'm going to pronounce it as a good South Carolinian would pronounce it because that's where I take my roots from. It's the word hesed. It's a Hebrew word. It's a word that defines grace. But our English words can't really wrap... We can't really wrap our arms. We can't really wrap our minds. We don't really have an English equivalent to this word. There's a man named Eugene Peterson who's a great theologian, and he's described hesed in this way. He says, Hesed is a way of life that works for the good of another. It brings out the best in another. It sees behind or beneath whatever society designates a person to be, whether they designate them to be disabled inconvenient, a rival, worthless, dysfunctional, and it acts to affirm a God-created identity. That's what this passage is about. A God who loves us with a loyal love, a steadfast love, a covenant love, an unfailing love, a faithful love. And we see this in three ways. The first one is quit. God seeks us in our shame and suffering. God seeks us and He finds us in our shame and suffering. That's what the the whole passage is about. Verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3. And the king said to Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba says, well, there's a son of Jonathan. He's crippled because he's nervous. He's figuring David's not going to wreak any wrath upon a crippled man who can't protect himself or defend himself. But then in verse 5, it says this, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir. David seeks and finds Mephibosheth. God seeks and finds us. It's an amazing thing. There's, there was no reason for, for, for Mephibosheth to be someone who was found. He was living in a place called Lodabar. It was a place that literally meant no pasture. It was a place of deep darkness. It was a place of deep suffering and shame. And David seeks to bring him out of there. And he brings him to the king's quarters. That's what God does for us. God seeks us in our shame. How do we respond to God? We run from Him. We flee from Him. We're scared of Him. But He's a God who pursues us and seeks us and finds us. But there's a second way in which God shows us His grace. A grace to guilty, uh, shame-defined, suffering people. Not only does He seek after us and find us, but the reason He does this is to save us from our shame and suffering. Look in verse 7. Mephibosheth shows up on the scene. It's already been stated that David's intentions are to show him kindness... God's form of kindness, this hesed kind of kindness. And David says to Mephibosheth, do not fear. That's the first words he speaks to him because he knows he is in deep uh, panic. He's in deep terror right now. He is the member of the family that has done nothing but seek to harm David. He's the last man standing, so to speak. And he's not even standing because he's crippled. And he shows up before David and David knows that he's afraid. And David says, do not fear. He says, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall always eat at my table. Mephibosheth can't make, he can't figure this out. In verse 8, he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Who am I that you should come and seek and find a man defined by shame and suffering? Who am I that you should come and call me to your quarters so that you could show the kindness of God unto me? I am not worthy. And David says, I'm going to restore to you all of Saul's land. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do a great act of mercy and kindness for you because of your father, Jonathan. This is a poor example of this, but it's, it's kind of was shocking yesterday. All the traffic was pouring into the TCU football game. I was exchanging cars with my intern, Nathan. Uh, there are many, 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 many signs in people's yards that say, no parking. You will be towed Fort Worth to police department. Fort Worth Police Department. It's pretty clear they don't want you to park anywhere near TCU, at least in front of somebody's house, on a football game. We couldn't find a place to park nearby, so we pulled in a driveway uh, next to somebody's garage. There were three garages, and we pulled in front of one of them. We were just talking there in the car, and all of a sudden I look, and this older man, probably in his early 70s, wearing his undershirt, very tall, kind of pale, walks up, stern-faced, kind of growling look at us, and he goes, I'm like, okay, this is great. <laughs> We're about to get in big trouble here. Um, so, he's, so he rolls down the way. I'm like, sorry, I'm so sorry, sir. You know, we were just exchanging cars. We're really sorry. We're going to move our car. We'll get out of here. I mean, we just, we had nothing to tell him. And he says, don't move. I'm like, okay, great. He's about to pull a gun out and shoot us. <laughs> or, or he's either going to call the police so they can do that. And um, so we say, don't move. And then he says, don't move. You can park here. And if you tell anybody that asks you that Hank said so. And if you see somebody else that needs somewhere to park, you tell them to park in these other two places. And you tell them Hank said so. So we said, okay, thank you, Hank. (laughs) So so he walked off. And I said, what in the world was that all about? So the question kind of, I was, why did he tell us that? And the only answer I could come up with is because that's just who Hank is. Hank's just that kind of guy. He's the kind of guy that wants somebody that doesn't have anywhere to park to park in his driveway. That's kind of how, that's kind of the logic that we come to this passage with. Mephibosheth shows up. He's a dead dog. Why are you doing this for me? Why is David doing it? There's a little bit more than, than, than just this behind it. But, but the real, real reason was because that's just who David was. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of character. His relationship with Jonathan, his covenant that he made with, with, with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, was a covenant built and based upon Hesed kind of love. I want to read to you just real briefly that covenant. You can find it in um, 1 Samuel chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. But, but Saul's after David. He's seeking to, to take David's life. And Jonathan says, I'm going to protect you. And this is what goes on there. 1 Samuel 20 verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not, send, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You see, Jonathan's entering into this covenant and he's saying, David... I know you're about to take the throne, 
And when there's no one hardly left from my family, please don't cut off your love from my family. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so David, at this moment in history, is acting upon the covenant that he had made with Jonathan in order to show favor to Mephibosheth. You see, the reason he loves Mephibosheth is because of the covenant love that he pledged unto Jonathan. And it cost him an unimaginable amount, in a sense. It cost him his pride. It cost him his reputation among other nations that would think, what kind of king is this? This is a weak king. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, eradicate all of his enemies from his land. He actually brings them into his house, and he gives them back the land. It cost him financially. But it was just synonymous with the kind of character of David. What does this remind you of? Well, it should remind you of how God treats us. That God seeks to show us this very same kindness, but something much greater, something much more unimaginable. You see, God calls people like you and I, and maybe we wouldn't want to refer to ourselves as dead dogs. And I certainly don't want to, to, to do any dishonor to the fact that we are all created in the image of God. But when it comes to our spiritual standing before God, we're not much better. We're bankrupt. We don't bring a whole lot to the table. Actually, we bring a whole lot of baggage. And yet God seeks to show us grace and kindness. He seeks to restore to us what He intended for us in the garden. He seeks to restore to His arch enemies the things that they, that they want most but they can't get. He, he, makes, he, he puts us back on solid ground. He puts a foundation under our feet. He gives us all, under our feet. He gives us all of His kingdom, all of His grace, and all of His goodness. And He does this at a great cost. He takes all of our shame and all of our suffering and all of our guilt. And instead of forsaking us, He forsook His only Son. You see, the Lord Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father turned His back on His bleeding, dying Son so He would never have to turn His back on you and me. Why did He do it? Because that's just who God is. Because He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. It's not because of all the potential He saw in you and me. It's not because of all the things He thought that we could do for Him. But it's simply because of Hesed. This amazing, faithful, loyal love that God pledges to show to us each and every day of our lives. I think Tim Keller summarizes this goodness best when he says it, says it this way. You are more sinful, flawed, and broken than you could ever dare imagine. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared dream because Jesus lived and died in your place. But God doesn't just seek us to find us. Um, he doesn't just seek us to find us to save us from our shame and suffering, but He does something far greater than that, I think, the best part of the passage. It's brief. It's only a few lines. But God seats us with His Son. Or maybe better said it this way. God seats us as His sons at the table of the King. Look in verse 10. He says, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land from Mephibosheth, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. He shall always eat at my table. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. I love what it says, though, in verse 11. It says, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. 
I heard somebody talking about this, uh, talking about just kind of getting an image of what this gathering mealtime would look like in David's house. Imagine Absalom was a beautiful son of David. He comes in all of his beauty to sit down at the king's table. Tamar, his beautiful daughter, she shows up on the scene as well. Solomon coming out of his study. This family, you know, out of People magazine, out of Time magazine, this perfect family sitting down at the table. And all of a sudden, you start hearing this noise. Here comes Mephibosheth. See, he's got crutches under his arms to help him walk through the king's halls because he's, cr- he's crippled. And he comes and he clangs around as he pulls out the chair. It's more awkward, it's more high maintenance than your minds could ever comprehend. And he does this every single day for every single meal. And he sits down at the table. He doesn't sit at the extra table. He sits at the king's table like one of the king's own sons. That's not like the most important celebrity in the world asking you over for dinner one time. This is something far more unimaginable than that. This is the most powerful man in all of Israel. And he says, I don't want you to come over for a one, for a one meal deal. I want you to come and eat at my table every single day for every single meal like one of my very own sons. My friends, that's what God does for you and me. He doesn't just make our lives a little bit better. He doesn't just pardon us from our sin. He doesn't just cancel our guilt. But He makes us kings and queens in His family. He seats us at the table of His very own Son as one of His very own sons. That's the beauty of the gospel. There was a man named David Ireland who was married and very much wanted to have children one day. But he came down with a disease that was very much like Lou Gehrig's disease. He started to be sapped of his physical capabilities. He started to, to not be able to walk. He was dragging one foot along with him. And soon, he no longer could walk at all. His wife had a baby in, his womb, in her womb, and he decided that he wanted to write letters to an unborn child. And I want to read one of the letters that David Ireland wrote to the child that was in his wife's womb. He says, My child, I want you to know what your mother is like. She's absolutely incredible. And I think that I can make it clear to you by just telling you what happens when we go out to eat at night. When you go out to a restaurant, this is what she has to do when we go out. Because I'm a quadriplegic now and in a wheelchair, she has to bathe me, dress me, empty the urine and fecal bags that are strapped to my legs, and then put me in the wheelchair, drive me out of the garage, open the garage, open the door, get out a board, pull up the arm of the chair, slide me across the board, put me in the car, put down the arm, fold up the chair, open the trunk, put in the chair, close the trunk, Close the door, get in the car, back it out, close the garage door, drive to the restaurant. When we get there, the whole process is reversed. Stop the car, get out, open the trunk, get out the chair, unfold it, bring it to the door, open the door, put down the board, slide me across, put down the arm, close the door, push me in, shut the trunk. We sit down at a table, she feeds me, wipes the drool from my mouth, and because I can barely eat, gets up, pays the check, and then the whole process is reversed. We go out to the car, she opens the door, takes off the arm, puts down the board, slide me across, puts down the arm, folds up the chair, goes to the back, opens the trunk, puts up the chair, closes the trunk, gets in the car, and drives away. We get to the garage. Up goes the garage door, everything else is reversed. She takes me in, she cleans me, she empties the fecal and urine bags, she bathes me, she puts me in my pajamas, she lays me in my bed, and then she says, and son, these are her last words to me. Thank you, honey, for taking me out to eat tonight. 
My friends, that's what this passage describes for us. It describes for us a God who seeks us and finds us. It describes for us a God who, when He finds us, He saves us from our shame and our suffering. And it describes for us a God who treats us like David Ireland's wife treated him, who treats us like we're kings and queens. Why? Because of Hesed. Because that's just who He is. He's a God who delights to show mercy and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this passage of grace. Lord, allow us to drink it in. Allow us to digest it. Holy Spirit, change our lives. Don't allow us to leave without comprehending Your goodness for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of